Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord? It is. I mean, for so long, we just haven't been able to gather, and it's just great to see us uh, gathering again. I was going to say to see your lovely faces, but A, I can't tell because they're covered with masks. So you could be lovely, you could not be. I don't know. For some of you, that's a very good thing. Um, Again, we're maintaining our protocols for right now uh, with masks during the service still. We're hoping to change that in a couple of weeks' time, but just to keep track of that, um, we have an Oasis event for the women that is coming up this Friday, so if you want to check at the Welcome Desk or Information Center in regards to that or online, and uh, others have asked in regards to offering. We're obviously not receiving offering during the service, but there are boxes in the back, and we're receiving online as well, too. Today, we're going to begin a new series. It's going to be five weeks, including this week. And it is entitled, A Different Way. A Different Way. Today is the first of five. John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. I have given them your word. This is Jesus speaking. And the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer to the Father is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They, meaning us, are not of the world, even as I am not of it, he said. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word, your scripture is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them, or us, into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Join me in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, as these gifts have been given, tithes and offerings, whether today in person or online, Um, We give to you freely and openly because you have given freely and generously to us, Lord. There's no compulsion, no manipulation. Lord, we just thank you for the blessings that you've given us. And Lord, we just ask that these things would be used for your purposes. But today we are gathered not just to worship you and honor you. We are gathered, Lord, to learn of you. And I pray, Lord, that, that your spirit would move past just the words simply today. That your word would move sharply in our heart and our mind and change how we think and how we act. Be with us here this morning, I pray by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, a long time now actually, I was in Australia with a a team. We were matched with another church in Brisbane. Later, we were matched in the church in Sydney that later ended up becoming Hillsong, so we were associated with some of them before that stuff came out. And the church in Brisbane we were associated with um, had a pastor who was a really great guy. Um, really enjoyed him. We stayed in his home, uh, my wife and I, and, and one or two of the team, Rick Camiso, and one or two others. 
And um, I remember gathering around the table and having conversations. Now, Harvey Ladlow is his name, and Harvey was a really interesting guy. Before becoming a pastor, he had actually been a um, scuba diver instructor, and as such had met his wife, had instructed her for her certification, and they had become married. Um, he and his wife, Barbara, were also practicing nudists at that time. They weren't practicing at the time they became Christians, fortunately. Um, so they had a very interesting background. Harvey was also a pastor who had a deep um, and abiding love of history. Go figure. So we had this conversation around the table. We were discussing cultures and differences and the things that we wouldn't maybe normally pick up. And it was there that I first heard about the Battle of Agincourt. No. Agincourt was a little town in France. The British had been running from the French for a period of time. This is hundreds of years back, 1400s, I think, somewhere in that range. There were about 3,000 of them, exhausted, tired, about 20,000 French. Um, and so the English finally decided to take a stand. And in doing so, ended up um, having one of the most significant victories in military history. 3,000 against 20,000 or so. And the English won the day. Now, the way they won was because of a new military technology that they had developed called the longbow. Longbow was the size of a human being. It was six feet long. And it took your whole lifetime to acquire a talent for it. But because of its size and its pull, for the first time, um, arrows could penetrate armor. Now, the French hated this. Um, the French nobility had spent lots of money on their very expensive, very trendy uh, um, suits of armor. Most of them were nobles, aristocracy. Most of the, if not all, of the archers were, in fact, peasants. And so the idea that a peasant could take down someone dressed in the finest, most expensive, trendiest armor possible was really offensive to the French. They hated the archers, so whenever they would capture one, and if there was a prisoner exchange, they would first cut off these two fingers so they could never use them again to pull a bow. So just prior to the battle's engagement, all the archers, to a man on the English side, stepped forward to the French and went like this to the French to show them, we have our two fingers, and we are now going to use them to kill a bunch of you, which they then proceeded to do. It was an incredible victory, and all these knights went down, and it was, a, it was just an incredible event. So as Harvey related to me, he says, this is the reason why in English society, England, Australia, New Zealand, that to this day, if someone goes like this to you, this is the same as giving them the middle finger. And it's become that. I didn't know that. He then began to tell us about how when our President Nixon had gone to visit Australia, that at the point in time when he begins to leave in celebration, in celebration if you know, some of you remember, Nixon liked to give the peace sign, which is not a problem. No, 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 no. Not a problem. This means peace. But for some reason, he was excited, particularly exuberant, as he stands at the top of the plane before entering off, instead of going like this, he went like this. In essence, our president gave the middle finger to the entire country of Australia. 
Understanding different cultures, I think, is important. Whenever I'm in a different country, I like to learn their customs. If possible, I like to learn some of the language. I hate to be an ugly American. My best thing is if they don't even know I'm an American, that I think I'm a local. And so I like to learn a little bit of the language. I like to learn the customs. I like to respect the people whose land I'm walking in. When we were in Russia, we discovered quickly that the Russians, when they're married, wear their rings on their right hand. And so when we found some people were ogling us, particularly with anticipation for the possibility of a relationship, we needed to switch our bands over while we were in that country so that people would know that we were married. Came back to America, switched them back. Having a respect, understanding your culture, language, customs, all of that is really important. But at the same time, in all the countries I've been in, I have never lost my identity as an American. I have an American passport. I pay American taxes. I am, in fact, an American. And no matter what country I'm in, and no matter how much I try to respect and adapt, I never lose track of the fact that I am, in fact, an American, that I belong to a different culture, a different place, a different land. One of the things I want to try to drive to you in this conversation over the next couple of weeks, and particularly today as we discuss a different way to live, is this. Are you conscious of the fact that you are, in fact, embedded in a foreign culture? Now, those of you that are not Americans, Canadians, French, whatever the case may be, you know that because you're here in America and you recognize that. But for those of us who are Americans, we don't recognize that. This is the air we breathe. This is, this is the land we live in. There are certain traits and styles and approaches that are uniquely American that we don't recognize are actually foreign to other places. But here's the thing I'm asking you and trying to challenge you. As a Christian, are you aware that you are in this country or in any country you're going to claim that you are in fact a foreigner? and in a foreign culture, and in a culture that is often in conflict with the kingdom and citizenship that you're to have as a follower of Christ. That there are certain aspects that do not align with that kingdom. What Jesus is saying in this passage here is that that he was not of this world and that neither are we. But in the same way he was sent into the world, so are we sent and into this world. In John 17, in the message version, he puts it this way, I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it. Because they didn't join the world's ways. Because we stood in some ways aloof. This is not to be separatist. But there are certain aspects that we stand away from, because they didn't join the world's ways, just as I didn't join the world's ways, Jesus said. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Do you recognize that you are not defined by this world? That the way the world views you, plus negative, whatever the case, should not be a defining element for you or for me. We can respect the surroundings, 
But we must not identify with that, at least on the spiritual level. Let me walk a scenario for you, a thought game for a moment. Imagine right now that you are transported out of this moment in time and you are now living in Nazi Germany that for 10 years plus or so was dominated by some of the greatest evil the world has ever known. Not people, many people knew that at the time, but some did, and, and we certainly do now. So you're embedded in that society. You're living in a world that is increasingly dark and evil and twisted. Even the things of Christianity are being twisted. But you never forget that you're an American. And so as such, you look at some of the things that are happening maybe a little bit differently and you hold yourself somewhat apart even as you respect the country you're in. Now, translate that back now to here as a Christian inside America. There are aspects of our culture that are just as evil. There are aspects of it that are good. There are still vestiges of Christian thought and ways that are part of this country, but there are many things that are not. Can you see those things, or are you so soaked in the cultural aspect of it that you can't break free from that? That you identify as an American, or as a Republican, or a Democrat, or as a white person or a black person or someone of the left or someone of the right or all these different identifications that can tear and shred us apart before you identify as Christ. Before you identify as a Christian. One of the things that has been incredibly revealing about the church in America is this last number of years. The church has been shredded by political divide. Families have been torn apart by it. I thank God that this church has not been for the most part, has not been. But many churches have. What has happened is individuals have placed their politics amongst, uh, before their identity as Christians, brothers and sisters. The racial strife, where we identify with one race or another over that of becoming followers of Christ, where we're all brothers, we're all sisters, where there's only one race as far as God is concerned. And yet we involve ourselves in these other identities and these other issues this is what Jesus said is not to be the case. He goes on in John 18 at the time of his judgment before Pilate. He spells it out. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. We have a war right now. Holy war. Crusade. And by force, I'll clean you all out. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. But now my kingdom is from another place. There's another way of thinking. And violence is not part of that way. Holy wars have nothing to do with Christianity. He says there's some other way of living, some other identity. Goes on in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That there's an evil that controls this world. We know that evil exists. We know that it's in control. I mean, all you have to do is look at disco music and realize there's evil. <laughs> at one time it dominated the entire culture. Thank God we've stepped back from that. 
abyss. James chapter 4 says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? That if we identify with this world, that we're in enmity? There's a culture clash? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy, he says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. He loved the world when he could gain from that more than he could have from following the ways of God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And then finally, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. There's this constant effort to conform us to a certain way and style of things. Conformity is a type of social influence, according to the definition, involving a change in belief or behavior in order to fit in with a group. Conformity can also be simply defined as, quote, yielding to group pressures. And group pressure may take different forms, for example, bullying, persuasion, teasing, and criticism. The world is constantly striving to conform us, and in social media today, massively so, to conform us to the pattern of this world, to thinking how they think about things, to handle things the way they handle them. Even in Christianity, it's taken hold. And so Christianity is being seen increasingly as a belief of addition rather than subtraction. I've accepted Jesus. So in our Christian American mindset, I just add him to everything else I'm doing. So I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a Christian alcoholic. I'm, I'm a violent person. But now I'm a Christian violent person. The language just gets added on. I can do whatever I want, is the new phrase, and Jesus still loves me. Yes, he does. But he does not approve. Yes, Jesus loves you and me. But he not only does not approve, he deeply disapproves. And we're told that if we're not obedient to him in these things, that if we continue to see this just adding on, that we are cut off from him. God is actually a God of subtraction, not addition. What this means is that I come to Christ soaked in the things of the world, soaked in certain ways that are natural to me. And I'm now trying to learn the ways of the kingdom. I've literally been born again. And that means that there are certain things that need to be subtracted from my life. It's referred to as the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of certain things. There are certain things that I know do not please God. My violence, my vindictiveness, they're so natural to me in the world, are completely wrong in the kingdom of God. And that's just the starting point. And so once I come to Christ, I don't just have to add him to everything else. I begin to realize there's things that change in me. And this culture that whatever it is, American, French, human culture needs to change. And while I can be respectful of the culture I'm embedded in, I can learn the language and even some of the, the customs. There are certain things that I can no longer identify with, that I can no longer have a part in. 
Because God's shaping us for a different world, a different place. You want to know the worst thing you can say to me if you really want to insult me is to sit here and come up to me and say, you know, you're a pretty trendy guy, aren't you? Now, if you say that to me, you're a very trendy guy. In my mind, I'm punching you in the face. Now, not in my heart because I'm staying pure. It never gets down there. But in my mind, I'm like, are you for real? Do you realize what you're saying with that? Trendy, one definition to be very fashionable, up to date. Now, I know Randy would never say that you're a trendy guy. We see what you wear. We see what you drive. I believe in being up to date. I believe that we should track what trends are in place. But that's only one definition. The next definition of trendy is this. Marked by ephemeral, superficial, or faddish appeal, or taste. Then didn't help us, what's ephemeral mean? Ephemeral means lasting for a very short time. I'm caught with something that's going to only last for a very short time, but I'm applying it to my life. Let's take a moment, step out here for a moment, just for sheer honesty. How many of you ever actually wore bell-bottom jeans? Be honest. Okay, yeah. How many of you actually ever danced the Macarena? Don't answer that. That's just sad. It's just so sad. Okay? The Macarena plays on repeat in hell. That's just... <laughs> truly what it is. They're ephemeral. They lasted for a very short time. They don't have mm to it. The next phrase was superficial, meaning shallow, cursory, meaning lacking in depth or solidity. Superficial implies a concern only with surface aspects or obvious features, generally derogatory in implying lack of depth in knowledge, in reasoning, or emotions, or character. Don't you dare call me trendy. And why would you pursue being trendy? Ephemeral, lasting for a short time, superficial, shallow, lacking of depth in knowledge, reasoning, emotions, or character. And then finally, fad, a temporary fashion, notion, just an idea, a manner of conduct, especially when followed enthusiastically by a group. And so something is trendy for the moment, spiritually speaking, and we follow with the group under conforming and pressure, and we go just like all the rest of the group, right over the spiritual cliff like a bunch of lemmings. Don't you dare ever call me trendy. And why would you ever want to be that? We are called instead to something of eternity, a different culture, a different place. We are being reshaped and reformed. I have a number of friends that are Marines. I have a cousin of mine that was a colonel in the Marines. And every Marine I've ever talked to, same thing. They tell me the same thing. We show up at boot camp and they tore us down. They completely demolished who we were and then reshaped us and reformed us into Marines. And every other Marine is my brother. And there's the Marine way of doing things. And 
And I like the, the statement of the Marines. You know what it is? Semper Fi. Always. Oh, come on, you guys. Always faithful. Always faithful. As Christians, in the same way, as we become followers of Christ, it's not just an addition thing. Our lives are torn apart in many ways. We're reshaped, reformed. We find everyone now to be our brothers and sisters that are in Christ. And there's a new way of doing things. And yes, we are called to be always faithful, even in the midst of a culture that oftentimes deeply misunderstands us to the point of hating. We're no longer part of the crowd following the shallow recent things, but we're now bound for eternity, and we're looking for a culture to be shaped within our own hearts and minds that are proper for that other country. We don't lose the respect for the people around us. We don't dismiss that, and we're not escapists. Oftentimes in the church, you'll confine other Pharisees, which basically means a separatist who stands apart and won't engage at all with the culture, but the scripture says we're supposed to be in and part of that. But we want to escape and, and cut ourselves off entirely, or we're trendus, which is my own word. Or we're just chasing everything, and the church becomes no more than a reflection of the culture. Instead, we're supposed to be individuals that are disciplining ourselves, being reshaped, reformed, faithful, and following Christ preparing for another country, another way, another concept of how we operate. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said one time that, that what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. In other words, the deities or the idols that we fix our eyes upon shape our very identities. Let's call this Emerson's Law for a moment. Okay, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. And let's take this law for just a quick moment and apply it to two characters out of history. First one's the evolutionary scientist, the well-known Charles Darwin. He once wrote in his autobiography, quote, my chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. That's his idol. From this work he added, I am never idle, I-D-L-E, as it is the only thing which makes life endurable to me. And what effect did complete and utter devotion to scientific work have on the person that Darwin became? Well, he tells us. He says, up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure, and I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I find it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness, he says. He says, I became, quote, a withered leaf for every subject except science, which later he says that he sees as a great evil. But that was his fixation. That was his focus. That was his God. At age 19, another guy named Jonathan Edwards, out of early American history, a pastor and a pursuer of Christ, he wrote this at age 19, resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him, and consecrate myself wholly to him. 
Later in his life, Edwards reflected on how his object of worship affected his soul over the years. He said this, it brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, he said, as he closes the statement, it made the soul like a field or garden, he says. So you've got two gifted men with two different gods. One became a withered leaf, his own words. The other one became a garden, his own words. The object of their ultimate devotion and fixation shaped the very different kind of men these two became. What is your fixation? What is your focus? What is it that you are fixed upon? And if it's Christ, do you understand that he is a God of subtraction? That there are things so deeply inculcated in you and me culturally that is not good for the kingdom of God and that those things need to fall away. That we should be under a constant review before the things of God. What we are worshiping. What our eyes are fixed upon. How do you identify? What is the core? Is it your ethnicity? Is it your position in life? Is it your job? Is it your social status? Is your identity as husband, wife, child, son, daughter? Is it your national identity? Is it your political views? Is it your philosophical bent? Or at the core of it, is it Christ has saved me from hell? And he's shaping who I am. And I am in this world. I don't escape from it. I engage it. I respect the individuals. I want to learn some of the culture and some of the language so I can identify and work it out. But at its core, there are stark differences between where I come from as the kingdom of God and where this world is going to. And this world is temporary. All these things will be removed. The kingdom I'm part of is eternal. It has depth. It has character. And it doesn't change by the mood of the crowd. How do you identify? And are you preparing for a life, a different culture? Are you being transformed? Are you being conformed? A different way to live is what it means to come to Christ now. Having you brought to this point in time, I don't want to just leave you at this place, though it's good enough. And some of you, maybe the only fixation you've got is, okay, I guess the world's going to hate me. Glad I came. But that's not all of it. There's more. We're told in 1 John chapter 4, 4, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, meaning the world, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, I know we're not a very demonstrable crowd. I understand that. But if there's one scripture that deserves an amen in this whole day right now, it's this scripture. So let me read this to you again. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because of this. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, those are some people that are getting ready to go to heaven at some point in time and understand what eternity is about. 
But it goes on. It says in 1 John chapter 5, who is that that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we do, and we let those things work in our heart and mind and sever those things that don't align with the kingdom of God, then there is depth. Then there is character. Then there is attorney within our heart and mind that eschews the, the crowd and the shallowness and the trendiness that's out there. And they tear down the idols that have caught our attraction and we focus on the things of Christ. But it gets better yet, I feel like. 9.95, but not yet. We've got one more item. Because we go to the end of the book. I read a lot. And I have a very terrible habit. Someone gave me a book the other day, and I immediately flip. I want to see how it ends. I always flip to the last page. It's terrible. I know some of you that are purist readers hate that. You're messed up. Okay. I like to know what I'm getting into. And you have a right to know that too. Because it goes on at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, This is fantastic. I get chills in this one. The kingdom of the world that was evil has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Handle. That's, just, that's good. That's good. That's good. You're getting there, okay? You're not quite there, but you're getting there. Handel wrote his fantastic music work called The Messiah. And when it reaches this part, it's pulled right out of Revelations, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Now when this song is played, people generally stand. And when I was a kid growing up, I assumed it was the Christian national anthem. Because everyone stood. It was only later I understood the history. History is important because it gives us context. You see, this was being played for the first time before a king. And the king was seated, as he would always be seated during these presentations. Everyone else was seated. But there was something about this song, there was something about this scripture put into music that affected this earthly king so much that moved him so powerful to realize, even though he was a king of this world, that there was a king beyond this world that even he owed something to. That when this was sung, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. He just naturally stood in worship. And you know what? When the king stands, everybody else stands too. And so everybody stood up. And from that point on, whenever this song was played, everyone stood because this king first stood for it. Even he recognized something beyond the kingdom of the world, of this world, this place, this temporary, shallow existence that chases after the current trends that just become outdated the next day. At some point in time, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord, and those who are followers of Christ will have been prepared for that day because we've been shaping our lives towards it. And then finally, in Revelations 12, 9, the great dragon... That enemy has, was hurled down. That ancient serpent back from the garden called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And our God is utterly and completely victorious. If you want to look at right now the stuff that you suffer 
the people whose respect that you want so bad that you're never going to have as long as you're a follower of Christ. And the pains that you deal with and the losses that will all at some point in time have meaning. You are on the winning side. You're on the winning side. The question is, will we in this life acknowledge the kingdom of God? Or will we continue to pursue the various idols of temporary society that transfixes us? Father, I pray this morning in this place and for those listening from afar, God, that those of us who have found grace in you, those of us who call ourselves the church in humility and in brokenness, that, God, we would set aside any idols that would distract or transfix us and have our eyes only for you, that while we work in this world and while we engage in this world, we even have a mission that by our lives others would know you, that we'd never lose sight or identity spiritually in you, that nothing would be allowed to tear us apart as your church. Father God, this morning, show us a different way to live that we might be ever faithful to you and to your kingdom. Change that needs to happen And truth left to be heard From the sky into the ground Jesus speak There are idols in the room Buried deep inside our hearts And they need to come down May your kindness lead the way and take down the high places we build for ourselves Where selfishness reigns supreme And overturn the tables that don't belong in your temple Lord God, you're all we need So let the idols come down Turning from our ways to enthrone you in our praise, but we need your power. Holy Spirit, have your way and tear down the high places we build for ourselves, where selfishness reigns supreme, and overturn the tables that don't belong in your temple, Lord God, you're all we need, so let the idols come down.
There is change that needs to come. There are hearts that need your love. There is life now breaking through. If we just return to you, there is change that needs to come. There are hearts that need your love. There is life now breaking through. If we just return to you, may your kindness lead the way. Holy Spirit, have your way. Help us tear down the hard places we build for ourselves. Where selfishness reigns supreme, and overturn those tables that don't belong in your temple. Lord God, join all we need. Oh, and help us tear. Down the high places we built for ourselves, where selfishness reigns supreme. Oh, and overturn those tables that don't belong to your temple. Lord God, you're all we need. Oh, Lord God, you're all we need. Lord God, you're all we need. So let the idols come down. One of the things I appreciate about being part of the body of Christ is how different gifts are used. A song you just heard, that Jake wrote just recently. The song they're playing now, the song they're playing now is an old one. And this is what I'd leave you with today. The song is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Where is your identity? Where are your eyes fixated? It takes a certain courage to engage the culture properly and yet still hold faithfully things of God. It takes a special courage, but that's why he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Would you stand with me, please? Father, as we lean into these things of faith, we don't even trust in our own abilities because we couldn't achieve it. We all want the respect of the crowd. We don't want to be on the outside. Lord, it is only by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we are able to truly be born again and transformed and not conform to the world around us. So God, I pray and ask you, work within this fellowship, within this church, that we would humbly walk in this world but never lose sight of not just who you are, but also who we are in you. Teach us a different way to live. In your name, we pray and are gathered. And in your name, we go forth. 
And the church said, Amen. Four more weeks to go. Thank you.